Father, I, off the bat, admit that I am a sinner in desperate need of mercy, longing to be your channel and not wanting to get in the way. So magnify yourself. Magnify yourself through me. You've said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. So come and be faithful to that promise now as I act. For your glory we ask. Amen. My hope today is to help you see that God wrote the Old Testament for Christians. Oh yes, it was written ages ago to a people under different covenants, and yet that it was ultimately written for us, for our instruction, Jesus' Bible. That's, that's the Old Testament. He didn't have First Peter. He didn't have the epistles to John. He didn't have any of G- Paul's letters. He didn't have the Revelation. What he had was what we find in our Bible, the 39 books, the same ones in Jesus' Bible. In our Bible, they're arranged from Genesis to Malachi. For Jesus, it was the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Kutuvim, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings. His Bible as Christian Scripture. Now, Dr. Nacelli has, has supplied really a, a beautiful 3,000-foot perspective on this journey from exegesis to theology. And, and that makes a lot of sense for us as Christians in relation to the New Testament Scripture. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus and we're part of the New Covenant. We're members of Christ's church. But should we really exert all of that energy, all of that thinking over what God has said in relation to the Old Covenant? The Old Testament? Should, do we really need to go back there? And my desire in the next hour is to give clarity as to why, yes, we must. Why you don't just buy Dr. Nacelli's How to Understand and Apply the New Testament, but you get mine for understanding how to understand and apply the Old Testament. Ultimately, that's not at all what I'm doing here. It is... It is to help you see that God gave the initial three-fourths of the Bible to you. That he wants you to encounter not only him, but the glories of the Son of the living God, Jesus himself, from those first three-fourths of the Bible. Now, in my book, I, I open in the beginning identifying ten reasons why the Old Testament is important for Christians. So I just want to read through those ten, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the time focusing only on one of my ten. Number one, the Old Testament was Jesus' only scripture. And it includes 75.5% of our Bible. Three-fourths of what God has given us is Old Testament. We can't stop there. Old necessitates new, but it's part of our Bible. Number two, the Old Testament substantially influences key biblical teachings. Take out the Old Testament. How will you ultimately understand the whole idea that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Where do we go to see the clearest unpacking of the doctrine of creation? Where do we go but Isaiah 40 to see the clearest declarations of God's incomparability? Where do we go but the Psalter to see what the songs and hymns and spiritual songs actually are? Where do we go but the book of Proverbs to to gain clarity about our parenting in tangible ways? We need the Old Testament. We meet God in both Testaments. Number three. Long ago, in various ways, God spoke to us. Hear that? God spoke to us through his prophets. But in that, these last days, that same God has spoken to us through his Son. God's talking in all of this. Do you want to hear him? Read the Old Testament. The Old Testament announces the very good news that you and I get to celebrate 
The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, says Paul in Galatians 3.8, that through you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham saw the gospel. He savored the gospel, though he didn't get to experience it yet. But we can gain greater clarity about the beauty of the light that we get to see by looking at how deep the darkness was. The gospel was anticipated. Both the old and the new covenants call for love. Love God. Love neighbor. At the core of the old covenant law of Moses is love. Love is what they were supposed to do. All the other commandments simply clarify how to do it. And you and I are here called to love God, love neighbor, and we're wondering what's that supposed to look like? And in the Old Testament, we get 613 examples. That's how many laws the Jews have counted back there. 613 examples. It's not total. It was never supposed to be total. But it gives clarity to them of what love is supposed to look like, how, how deep it is, how wide it is, how high it is. And I want to know how to love my God and how much it's supposed to impact all of my life. We can gain clarity through the wisdom of the Old Testament. Number six, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. We can understand that fulfillment only by looking at the foundation. So don't live as if the law and the prophets are abolished. Rather, dig deeply for gold. Number seven, Jesus said, all of it points to me. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. Indeed, unpacking for them from from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus told them all of the ways that he was fulfilling what they talked about. Number eight, failing to declare the whole counsel of God can put us in danger before the Lord. That's what Paul told the Ephesians. I am not guilty of your blood, Acts 20, the Ephesian elders. I'm not guilty of your blood. If you choose to rebel and disobey against the living God, it's on you, not on me. Why? He says, because I did not hesitate to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. That is all of God's purposes from creation to consummation, culminating, integrating, progressing, and culminating in Christ. So the challenge as we read Acts 20 is, oh, Paul was not guilty. Am I guilty of not proclaiming the whole counsel of God? Number nine, the New Testament authors stress that God gave the Old Testament for Christians. That's where we're going to focus. And we'll see that it's not just the New Testament authors. The Old Testament authors themselves believed that what they were writing was actually less for the people of their day and more for us. That's what I'm going to be arguing for. Number 10, Paul actually commands church leaders to preach the Old Testament. We'll see that shortly. This is where we're focused. New Testament authors stressing that God gave the Old Testament for Christians. So here's my main thesis in four points. Number one, the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. Number two, God originally gave the Old Testament to instruct Christians. This isn't a... a, an original plan that fails, and so now we've got a New Testament. But rather, from the beginning, he intended that what was being written back there would have an impact on us once the Messiah came and he brought blessing to the nations. Number three, the Old Testament authors themselves actually had some sense that their words would be more meaningful for those living this side of the cross than for those living before it. And that Jesus is the one who enlivens us to read the Old Testament and to receive what is there. But he's not only a light, as Pastor John was talking about last night. 
A light that, the supernatural light that comes in and, and, and awakens the heart to see what it couldn't see before. I'm going to argue that Jesus is also the lens. He's the guide for helping us understand how to read the Old Testament in the way that ultimately points to him. So if we approach the Old Testament without Jesus, we will ultimately not arrive at the fullness of its meaning. So number one, New Testament reflections, New Testament reflections on who the main audience was of Old Testament instruction. So we're just going to look at a handful of texts. Paul believed that God gave the Old Testament for New Covenant believers. But the words, it was counted to him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. They were written down in the book of Genesis for us. Not just for him, but for us. Not for his sake alone, but for ours also. Romans 15.4, right after a chapter where Paul is surveying the questions that Christians and Gen- uh, Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles were wrestling with, what I should eat, what I should drink, what holy days do I keep, if any. Then he cites Psalm 69.9, which is a lament psalm and one of those psalms that bring curses on the enemies of the psalmist. Paul cites that and he says, for whatever was written in former days. He's talking about Old Testament stuff. Whatever was written back there was written for our instruction. That's the main title of my talk. It was written for our instruction in order that you and I might actually benefit through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures. We might have hope in the living God. 1 Corinthians 10, all that happened to Israel in the wilderness, the grumbling that gave rise to judgment, the work of the destroyer through the serpents that bit them due to their sin and the plague that God let come upon them, all of that happened to them as an example. But notice, when it moved from example in history to being written down, that the text was written for us. It was written for our instructions, our in instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he's seeing all of the history of salvation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. He's seeing this history pointing somewhere to an end. And the unexpected reality in the New Testament is that the end of history has come into the middle of history through Jesus. There's even an unexpectancy about it. When you're reading the Old Testament, you're anticipating for God to send his deliverer and to make it all fixed right away. So the end of the ages, as anticipated by the Old Testament prophets, has actually come upon us. The future has entered into the present. The end of history has entered into the middle of history through the first coming of Christ. And in that context, what was written back then gains its, its purpose. It was written for us to benefit from in this time period. Timothy. You remember that Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.5, were told that he had a mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. In Acts 16.1, they were, were told they were Jews. He had a Gentile father, but Jewish mother and grandmother. Paul says, Timothy, you know, Mr. Young Pastor in Ephesus, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So he's got a Jewish mom and a Jewish grandma from childhood teaching him the Word of God, the sacred writings. Well, what were these Jewish ladies what text were they going to to teach their son? The Old Testament. Now what's amazing is what Paul says about it. These sacred writings being delivered from grandma and mom 
to this boy are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, are you telling me a Christian could actually be reborn by reading the Old Testament? I think that's exactly what he's saying. But only in light of the coming of Christ. All Scripture is God is breathed out by God. When he says that, he's thinking predominantly Old Testament. And then he says this very Scripture that's breathed out by God is profitable for Christians. Do you have a framework that says that Christians can teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness from the initial three-fourths of the Bible? No, we're part of the New Covenant. We just use the New Testament. Paul's Bible was the Old Testament, and he thought people could grow in faith and meet Jesus and be saved, not just justified. Saved from my struggle with bitterness. Saved from my my daily struggle with, with anger, with lust, with impurity, with laziness. Our salvation is bigger than justification. What Jesus purchased on the cross is not just our right standing with God. He purchased salvation from all of our daily sins. We call it progressive sanctification. And it will culminate in glory. And the Old Testament scriptures, we can use them to help guide people. Now, naturally, there's difficulty to know how to do that faithfully because Jesus changes a lot of things. His coming transforms so much. We're no longer under the guardian of Moses now that faith in Christ has come. There's been a superseding that has taken place. Nevertheless, Somehow, the Old Testament is supposed to be able to be used in order that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then, just three verses later, what is he saying to Timothy? Preach the word. Preach the Old Testament. Which is then, even right now, being built upon when Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. New Testament is being written here. But the basic framework that I see in the, in the context is that it's Old Testament that's expanding. New Scripture is being added. All of it, the Word of God, all of it being called upon to be preached from as Christians. New Testament authors, we see many examples of how they use the Old Testament just normally in all their teaching. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. In light of Christ's coming... Paul still had a framework for drawing on the Ten Commandments, reaching back to that honor mom and dad text. This is the first commandment with a promise. And he doesn't pause in in relaying it to Christians, but only in light of the fact that Christ has come. And I could argue that from within Ephesians. How about to Timothy again? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor with respect to preaching and teaching. For that little conjunction. Why should I pay our elders? Why should we do that? For, for. Moses, back in Deuteronomy 25, says, don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing out its own grain. While it's, while it's working It can eat. And because Moses said that, it impacts how Christians live day to day. Here's Peter. Be holy in all your conduct, church. Since it is written. And then he just goes to Leviticus. He doesn't add any explanation. It's written in the book. Follow it. Now, I don't think it's that simple. And I don't think it was that simple to Peter. He was in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and affirmed James's context, James's statement, let us not put a burden on all those Gentiles that we ourselves have been unable to bear. And Peter was, you're right, you're right. And yet he doesn't hesitate in his, in his letter to go right back there to Leviticus. We need to have an understanding of how these guys are doing that faithfully so that we can 
use the initial three-fourths of our Bible faithfully. Now here's Peter again. The Old Testament was written for our instruction. That's what Paul said both in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10. But that was written, that's a passive. Was written by who? Are we talking about the human author understood that he was writing for our instruction or was it just God, the the ultimate author? He had in his purposes as the words were coming through the prophets that ultimately they would relate to someone greater. And Peter says, The prophets themselves had an understanding. Look at Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Hear that first off. They are preaching about a grace that would come, not a grace that they were experiencing. The prophets who prophesied about a grace that would be yours, they were searching, inquiring carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but us. They, they understood. Now we'll come back to this text because it's, it's super important. What I want us to see here is it was revealed to them. They grasped the fact that when they wrote their their book, three-fourths of what we consider our Bible, they understood that they were serving not themselves but us. They were writing it for us, the Old Testament as Christian Scripture. Not something old because it doesn't relate to us, old because it's been superseded by a new, but all of it Christian Scripture, all of it able to be used for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Number two, we've looked at New Testament side. I just want to jump back and consider four examples from the Old Testament where we can actually see that they understood that they were writing not for themselves. They were serving not themselves but us upon whom the end of the ages have come. So I'm going to look at Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Now, Moses' three favorite words in the book of Deuteronomy for his audience, he's been shepherding them for 40 years. He loves these people. His favorite words for them, stubborn, unbelieving, and rebellious. How'd you like to pastor that flock? And he, I say favorite words, I mean he uses them over and over and over again. They are stubborn. They're unbelieving. They've got a faith problem. And they are rebellious. Indeed, he goes so far to use the exact same word with them that he uses of the Canaanites. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart am I giving you this land, but because of their wickedness. Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 9? At the end of the chapter, he uses the exact same word to catalog his own people. Wicked. That's what his audience was. So much so that he goes and he says, you're stubborn now, but I know this. And he offers a prediction under the inspiration of God. I know that when I die, your wickedness and stubbornness will only increase so that you'll go into the land and sin, sin, sin. Idolatry will culminate in judgment and God will destroy you from the land. That's where they're going. Moses has a framework already. He understands that he's preaching and teaching to a people for whom his words will result in their condemnation. When Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.9 says, the old covenant bore a ministry of condemnation, he's not simply, I don't believe, reflecting backwards on the fact that the Old Testament ended in death. He is simply affirming what Moses already declared in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses knew the old covenant would result in death. Why? Deuteronomy 29, 2. You've seen, Israel, all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. Think about that. The water of the Nile turning to blood. Hail, gnats, darkness, while we stay in the light. God declares 
The oldest child will die. Blood on the doorpost. You've seen so much. You saw the waters stand up and then fall down and destroy the entire Egyptian army while I brought you through safely. You've seen so much. All that I did to Egypt. But to this day, through Sinai, through 38 years in the wilderness, to this day as I preach the words in Deuteronomy, the Lord has still not given you eyes to see ears to hear. You don't have a heart to understand. That was Moses' audience. But that wasn't the end. Moses envisioned a day when his words would not reach deaf ears, blind eyes, ignorant hearts. Notice that it's not just that they're blind and deaf and ignorant. God hasn't given them this. It would take supernatural intrusion to open eyes, remove deafness, and awaken a mind. Moses already saw it. His words are written down, but he's saying it'll take a supernatural reading, and you haven't got it. But... The day will come when the Lord your God will actually change out your heart. He's going to do some surgery within, moving you who I've called to love, but you're unable to love. Moving you who I said, this law that I'm commanding today, you shall put on your heart, and yet you're unable to put it on your heart. One day, God will do what he's commanded. He will circumcise your heart, empowering you to love, and then just two verses later, he says, in that day, you will turn and you will hear the voice of God in a future day after exile that's Deuteronomy 30 after the exile has happened after all the curses have come in a future day you who are deaf will have ears to hear you will actually hear God hasn't given you today the ears to hear but you will hear in that future day and you will heed and obey all that I have commanded you today hear that Everything in Deuteronomy that I'm commanding you today that you're deaf to, that you're blind to, you don't see the glories that I'm talking about. You don't hear the words. It's not penetrating your heart. It's not changing you in the least. And it'll result in your condemnation. But there is a day coming when Deuteronomy is going to matter. It's in the day of heart circumcision that Paul says in Romans 2 is now. We know who the Jews are, the true Jews. It's not those who are certainly just uh, circumcised in the flesh. No, a true Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. And in that future day, all the words that I am commanding you today, you will be careful to do. Now, I believe that's what the church is called to do. But only in light of the fulfillment of Christ. Matthew chapter 5 I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. As long as the heavens are still up in the sky, not the smallest jot or tittle is going to fall from the law. Those who teach these commandments and do them will be called great in the kingdom of God. But those who fail to teach and do will be called least. I think he's talking in Matthew 5, 19 of the commandments of Moses, but only in light of the fulfillment of Jesus. So Moses matters just as he anticipated. He would matter in the day when ears would be opened to listen, but only in light of the fulfillment of Christ. We don't approach Moses as if Jesus didn't come. We approach Moses through Jesus. Isaiah He's commissioned on a mission. Keep on hearing, but don't hear. Keep looking, but don't see. Do you remember that? Isaiah sees the glory of God in the heavenly temple, throne room, palace. One seated on the throne, holy, holy, holy. He saw the glory. He heard the glory, and it changed him from within. Who will go for me? I'll go. Send me. Okay, here's your mission. 
Keep looking, but don't see. You out there, keep listening, but don't hear. He had a mission of judgment. How long, O Lord, do I keep doing this until all of the forest of Israel is burned down and then I burn it again? That's that's Isaiah's mission. We read, speaking of the, the the whole nation of Israel as if they are God's servant, one person. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear, Isaiah 42.20. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears, Isaiah 43.8. They do not know nor do they discern. Why? Because God has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their ears so that they cannot understand, Isaiah 44.18. It's within that framework that we come to this text. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves, Isaiah says, and be blind. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Hear that. Isaiah's preaching but his words are hitting unresponsive, spiritually disabled people. It's as if his words in his book are sealed when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, read from Isaiah. He'll say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Isaiah's book was sealed to his audience. But he anticipated something. Sorry, before I get to the anticipation, Paul recalls this, that the same blindness and same deafness in Isaiah's day, the judgment of God on them because they loved the darkness more than the light, continued to his day. Israel as a nation failed to obtain what they were looking for, righteousness and life. They failed to obtain it. There was a remnant back there the Abrahams and the Moseses, the Rahabs and the Ruths. There was a remnant. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, divine, passive. As it is written, citing Isaiah 29 and then adding Deuteronomy 29 in, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And it continues substantially even today, 2,000 years later. But something does happen, and Isaiah anticipated it. For his audience, his words were like a book sealed. But the day would come when the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. He anticipates a day when his words would matter. So what does God tell him? Go, I've given you a vision. Write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe the book of Isaiah in a book that it may not be for your generation, but for a time to come as a witness forever. The Old Covenant, Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Jeremiah Similar to Isaiah, write it in a book. Here's Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I want you too, Jeremiah, to write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. Why? Why should I write them down right now? For, 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 write it in a book today. For days are coming. And throughout Jeremiah, that's the signal that I'm, ta- I'm going to get ready to tell you something about the new covenant. Write it in a book today, for the days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I'll bring them back to the land and that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. Isaiah's writings are for, sorry, Jeremiah's writings are for a post-exilic restored community. Notice what he says. He's talking then to the restored remnant. He's giving them prophecies telling them about the, tell, telling this community in the future about the devastation that will come in the exile. 
The fierce anger of the Lord will, turn, will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you'll actually understand what I'm talking about. It's not for the now. In the latter days, you'll understand. That's when understanding will come. Well, when are the latter days? At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Well, that's Jeremiah 31.1. At that time, there will be this covenant reunion. I will be their God. They will be my people. That's when the latter days will happen. Now, we're in Jeremiah 31. We only have to get to verse 33. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33 says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my law in their heart. I will be their God and you will be my people. Echoing this text. When will understanding come? You will understand this in the latter days. When I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he goes on and describes, that's the new covenant day. That's when understanding comes. Write my, these words in a book because Understanding is going to be given later. The Old Testament was written for Christians. Daniel. Daniel's just filled with symbolic dreams and visions, declarations. In Daniel, they're actually called mysteries, using the same word that both Jesus and Paul pick up on. Mystery revealed. Well, in Daniel, these mysteries are given and some of the revelation is actually given to Daniel so that he can understand the mystery. He's an interpreter of the dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. And those dreams are called mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar has some grasp of the mystery. He can see what's there. It's a statue with, with four different parts. But the interpretation is also part of the mystery and he can't get it. So Daniel can say, it can be said of Daniel, he understood the word and understood the vision. He had some understanding of what was being given. But then there were elaborations that came of which he would say, I heard, but I did not understand. Look at how it's worded here. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, the resurrection of the dead. That's what Daniel's envisioning, a future day when resurrection will happen. And those in that day of, the resur of resurrection who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel... I've been talking about the future. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. How long? Will it always remain closed? No, it'll be until the time of the end. Many in that day shall run to and fro, and knowledge in that day will increase. Then someone said, well, how, sh how long shall it be till the end of the wonders? And... I heard the man say that it would be for a time and times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And then Daniel explicitly says, earlier he said, I heard and I understood. Now he says, I heard but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Give me the interpretation. Many... But, but he said to me, go your way, Daniel. No interpretation for you, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. In that future day, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked will act wickedly in that day. None of the wicked in that day will understand, but those who are wise will understand. I don't understand. Tell me what it means. No, you go your own way. These words are shut up in a book. Not even you as the prophet of God can understand all things. But the days are coming when that understanding will be disclosed at the end of the time. So go your way 
Rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So this is my synthesis. They were serving not themselves, but us. Yahweh's prophets did not fully grasp the meaning of all of their predictions. They understood some, but but not all. I understand, Daniel could say, and then he could say, I heard, but I don't understand. They didn't fully grasp all their predictions, all their declarations, but they did believe that a remnant of faithful would understand in the last days. Go your way, Daniel. These words are sealed up in a book. In the latter days, you'll understand. But there's another group. There's people like Daniel, the remnant, who didn't fully understand, but there's another group. The prophets were convinced that the rebel majority, who had eyes but couldn't see, ears but couldn't hear, that their contemporaries could neither hear nor heed their messages due to God's hardening judgment, but they also envisioned a day when the Lord would overcome such spiritual disability. To this day, God has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear, but there's a day coming when you shall turn and hear the voice of the living God and you will obey all that I have commanded you. The vision of all this has become like the words of a book that is sealed. When men say, read it, They say, I can't for it's sealed, but the day is coming when the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and out of their darkness their eyes will see. New Testament reflections on the rebels. Now I'm just going to hop over this section due to time. Pastor John touched on it last evening. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? The Jewish leaders had it right there in the book, but their own hardness of heart, their spiritual adultery, their proneness to other lovers kept them from seeing. But it wasn't just the leaders, it was the crowds who were a part of the judgment of God. He did so many signs among them, but they still didn't believe so that the word spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed and what, what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? They're not listening. And then also Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. That is the makeup of this group. Paul's commentary, Israel failed to obtain it. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor. And 2 Corinthians 3 The Jews' minds were hardened. For to this day, there's a veil when they read the Old Covenant. There's things there that are always there, but unable to see. Because it's like a lighted room, you're playing pin the tail on the donkey, and You can't see what you've done. You don't know where you're going. Why? Because you've got a veil over your eyes. That's what it was like for these rebels in Jesus' day. The God of this world had blinded their minds to keep them from seeing light. The light of the gospel written down for us. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But God, the very one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has for all of us in this room, once enemies of God, I pray it's everyone in this room, pierced into the darkness of our soul and said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, what do we gain? He has shown into our hearts to give us the light of what? the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But it's not just the rebels who were unable to understand. Not just the rebels like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the crowd that got parables yet remained hard. No, it's even the disciples. He said to his disciples, to you has been given the secret. This is the same word that's used in Daniel 2 through 4 for mystery. Right now, to you, all of my followers, this is the time when mysteries are disclosed. To you, the mystery of the kingdom of God is revealed. 
But to everyone outside, all I give them is a parable without the interpretation. But then he bemoans the fact, do you not even understand? Can you not understand what I'm saying yet? The disciples aren't getting it. They themselves are not getting it. There's a, one of the ways that Mark talks about this is he, in the very first time that Jesus heals a blind man in the gospel, do you remember? It doesn't happen instantly. It happens in two stages. In the beginning, Jesus begins to heal him and he says, what do you see? I, I see a bunch of trees walking. You remember that? And then Jesus takes that miracle a step further and all of a sudden he can see holy. The very next story that happens, who do people say that I am? You are the Christ, Peter says, the son of the living God. Matthew tells us flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. Special enlightenment. But then what's the very next story? Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you do not understand the ways of God. His understanding is partial. But then the very next, uh, the next story of Jesus healing the, the blind man, the blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for his death. Save me, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him and he's instantly healed. And the, the narrative flow seem, suggests to me that, that there's something going on as Jesus moves to Jerusalem Enlightenment is increasing. But he rises from the dead and things don't change immediately. He's on the road to Emmaus with the two guys. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. These are his, his followers and they still aren't getting it. Was it not necessary? Could you not read it in the book that the Christ was supposed to suffer and then only after that enter his glory? Could you not see it? This is beautiful. They're recalling to the rest of the disciples that experience with Jesus on the road. Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened up the scriptures? They're seeing what was there in light of Jesus. Fulfilling that the deaf would hear the words of a book, out of their darkness their eyes would see. Fulfilling that the wise would understand in that day. Jesus shows up in the presence of all of his disciples now and he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses Old Testament, prophets, Old Testament, Psalms must be fulfilled. And he didn't just open up the scriptures, he opened up their minds to understand. All of a sudden, Moses matters, Isaiah matters, Jeremiah, I can see it. The last days have come. I understand, I understand. Daniel's being fulfilled. Jesus is revealing a mystery. It's not totally new revelation, but it's still now a full disclosure of something that was significantly hidden in the past. Full disclosure. So the Old Testament prophets understood in part, but only in part, what they were actually testifying to. They knew something. He understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Indeed, he saw it and was glad. These are, these, these are statements that give clarity. These Old Testament saints knew something. Knowing, knowing, knowing that God had sworn to him with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, Psalm 16. I, I think that means David foresaw. These prophets actually saw something. They knew something. 
all of those people of faith, they died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them. They saw them. They greeted them, but only from afar. The prophets didn't know all, though. I heard, but I didn't understand. Then the messenger of the Lord said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed in a book until the time of the end. I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but they didn't see it. They longed in their souls to hear what you're hearing, but they didn't hear it. They didn't know all. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So what this actually says to what I'm understanding here is that this is actually telling us how inspiration worked. It didn't only happen that God gave a vision about the future. It also included the reading of the Bible supernaturally. That is where, where Isaiah is actually wrestling with his Bible. He's looking at Moses and learning about the person and the time when the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. This isn't a statement about ignorance. This is a statement about their awareness. They were searching hard, reading, 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 and the Spirit of God was illuminating things to them that they had never seen. But they also recognized something. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but us. There was more to it than they had in front of them. They grasped that their messages were principally for those living in the days of fulfillment. And finally, sorry, no finally there. It was the resurrection of Jesus. And I've just got two examples here, John 2 and John 12. In both instances, whether it's Jesus declaring himself the temple or Hosanna to the son of David as he comes in on his triumphal entry, in both instances, it says it's only after his resurrection or after Jesus' glorification that the disciples remembered what he said and understood the scriptures that anticipated those days. Now to him who is able, Paul says, to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. Now get that. There's a mystery that's being revealed in relation to the gospel and while I'm preaching to you, Paul says. It's a mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It was a secret to rebel and remnant alike. Even to those who saw my day, rejoiced and were glad, there was mysteries withheld from them. but it's now been disclosed. Indeed, this is what's so mind-boggling, is that it's through the very prophetic writings of the Old Testament that the mystery's made known. This is about a, the, the language that Dr. Nacelli used was organic. That it's actually there. We're not looking at a, a, an apple tree grow into... An oak tree, sorry, an apple seed grow into an oak tree. We're actually seeing something that, it, that has organic connection, yet it has progressive development. So it's not an apple seed growing into an oak tree, but an acorn moving into an oak tree. But it's also not always an oak tree moving to an oak tree. Sometimes you see that where they actually saw something of the tree but in Christ it's still bigger, more powerful looking, more beautiful. But, but the mystery element suggests that most of the time 
There's actually, they recognize I'm holding an acorn. But as much scientific investigation as I do on that could not give me clarity as to how tall that tree was going to be and how many branches it was going to have, how many acorns it would produce. But I know for certain that I'm holding an acorn. Christ's appearing supplies believers with the necessary light to see what has always been there. This is supernatural reading. But I'm proposing that he actually does more in light of the language of mystery. That his coming also supplies a lens that actually influences and guides our reading of those very texts. At times he supplies unknown interpretation. At other times he he simply fills out and expands and, and deepens upon the implications of the human author's meaning. Now in regards to this, and I'm wrapping it up. In regard to this, uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says this, Later revelation can complete and fill meaning that was initially but not comprehensively revealed in the original setting. So that once the progress of revelation emerges, the earlier passage is better and more comprehensively understood. He says further, the force of earlier passages in God's plan becomes clearer, more developed, as more of the plan is revealed in later events and texts. So so this this increase in clarity often involves the identification of, of new reference, new connections, to which the initial reference only pointed forward like a picture. Greg Beale, also New Testament professor, says it this way. It's quite possible that the Old Testament authors did not exhaustively understand the meaning, Old Testament authors, did not exhaustively understand the meaning or implications and possible applications of all that they wrote. Subsequently, the New Testament Scripture interprets the Old Testament Scripture by expanding its meaning, seeing new implications in it, and giving new applications. This expansion does not, does not contravene the integrity of the earlier text, but it rather develops them in a way which is consistent with the Old Testament author's understanding of the way in which God interacts with his people, which is the unifying factor of the Old and the New Testaments. Now what both these guys are saying, I believe, is that even if the Old Testament authors, the Old Testament guys, were not fully aware of all that God was speaking through them, they at least retrospectively would have affirmed the trajectories defined by the later biblical authors. That if Moses, for example, who died outside the promised land, was ever allowed to get into the promised land, like he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, and see Jesus he would indeed be blown away with the one that he was seeing, the one that he wrote about. Oh, you're better, you're more beautiful, you're more worthy of all that I expected. He would have affirmed where his trajectories landed rather than saying, I was predicting an apple tree. Who are you? He wouldn't have said that. Beale restates, when there is a divine understanding God's authorship that transcends the conscience, conscious intention of, human, of the human author, the divine understanding is still organically related, using it in the same way that Dr. Nacelli had been using it. Still organically related to the human author's understanding or what he willed. What God knew more fully than the prophet consciously knew would be an interpretive implication that would actually fit within the human author's willed type. That's what Pastor John was talking about last evening with the human author can actually intend more things than he's consciously thinking about. If this human author was asked later, then the prophet, like Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, would say, yes, I see how that is the wider, thicker meaning of what I intended originally to say 
We must say that in every case, God had a more exhaustive understanding than the biblical authors had of what they wrote. When we're talking about light, God enlightening the eyes, it's like the veil is removed. If we're talking about Jesus serving as the lens, we're talking, I think, about the New Testament being like an answer key that gives us clarity about where, as we work the problem, we're supposed to end up. Because what Jesus is doing is giving us God's purpose in revealing the Old Testament the way he did. So what I've been arguing is that the Old Testament is thoroughly Christotelic. The Greek word is telos, meaning end or goal, like, like the race line that is both the end of the race, and a marathoner is glad that he's arrived there, but it's also the goal. I want to get there. Jesus is the, the end and goal of all Old Testament history, all Old Testament law, all the visions given to the prophets. Jesus is the culmination. He's the climax of salvation history, the one to whom all the predictions point, the one from whom all fulfillment comes. With his arrival, eyes that were once blind to the glory of God can see. With his arrival, ears that were once deaf to what the word of God was actually saying can now hear. Hearts that were once dead begin to live and embrace the good news that the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through and only through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Jesus fulfills all Old Testament hopes. In him, anticipation gives rise to realization. In Jesus, God reveals the mysteries that were hidden. He is both a light and a lens when it comes to reading the Old Testament. So we read the, the visions and the declarations. We read them through Jesus. In him, we gain fuller understanding of the interpretation and the meaning. Daniel understood some, but he didn't understand all. In Christ, we are progressively, increasingly gaining more understanding. The direct promises and predictions, it's in Jesus that the fulfillment comes. The types, the shadows, Jesus supplies the substance. The patterns were there, and often we see the Old Testament authors recognizing those patterns themselves. The prophets recognized that the first exodus out of slavery to sin anticipated a greater second exodus out of, sla sorry, out of slavery to Pharaoh anticipated a greater second exodus out of slavery to sin. They recognized that. There was a pattern already set so that when Jesus comes, the pattern gains its ultimate context. And then every one of the laws of Moses still matter for believers, but only in light of Christ's fulfillment. He is the light. He's the lens. Now, if I was able to take another 20 minutes, I'd give you examples of how I understand this working. But my goal here has simply been to give you, give you a, an understanding for how you as a believer are supposed to be approaching this book. The initial three-fourths are for you, but ye, they only become for you. Don't go back there and try to, to act as though Jesus hasn't come yet. You won't arrive where you're supposed to arrive. And in, in my book, in the practical theology chapter, it's 100 pages long. And I'm just trying to help Christians understand what do I do with that law of Moses? Knowing that every bit of it matters for me, but all of it gets reshaped through the person of Christ. Are all the promises of God indeed yes for me? Even those ones that were given in that Old Testament day, how does the lens of Christ inform my reading of Old Testament promises. How do I meet Jesus and celebrate the gospel in the initial three-fourths of the Bible? Faithfully? That's one of the areas that are covered in my book. Let's pray.
Father, we do, each one of us, praise you that you are the light giver and the lens supplier. You awaken dead hearts to see beauty like we never saw it before. And through that encounter, we are satisfied. And you also guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake through the person of Christ. May we celebrate him as both light and lens. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. For the expansion of white-hot worship among an omni-ethnic community celebrating the glories of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.